Welcome to episode 128 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of TBR Podcast, I chat with Dr. Kat Mahaffey. And marketers have always targeted teens, but largely in my generation, it was through commercials on TV, right? PSAs, things like that. Uh, Billboards, mall displays, et cetera, et cetera. But now they can actually target a teen who, let's say a teen um, is getting ready for prom. Prom, and they might Google, how can I lose five pounds really quickly for the big day, right? Well, that appends to their digital profile. And all these dieting apps and dieting promoters will bombard that teenager with, you know, dieting stuff because there's no barrier. They're they're considered adults and there's a whole plethora of resources out there. If you have a product that you want to market to teens, a whole plethora of resources out there of how you can do that, right? How can you get to the teens? And that is bubbling to me. You'll hear more from Kat in a bit, but first I have some personal news to share with you all. I don't want to spend too much time on this topic, but I thought that longtime listeners of the podcast, especially those who are not on social media, would like to know that my wife and I are expecting our first child, a girl, due in August, and we are over the moon. I am excited, I am scared, I am nervous, and I am a million more emotions. And things are moving fast, so fast. A baby registry to build, a nursery furniture to assemble, a whole new life to plan for. How do you even do that last thing? I'll keep you all updated on our progress in the coming months. But for the sake of full transparency, here's the thing you need to know. I am so excited to be a dad. I'm also excited to share my interview with Dr. Kat Mahaffey with you. Dr. Kat Mahaffey is a teaching professor in the Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies Department at UNC Charlotte. She teaches first-year writing and courses such as Digital Design Theory and Practice and the Rhetoric of Digital Design. She serves as the president of the Global Society of Online Literacy Educators, or GSOL, and as a Quality Matters Master Reviewer. Her research interests include online privacy, accessibility, digital rhetoric, and technical and professional writing. Her work is published in Next Steps, New Directions for in Writing About Writing and Emerging Technologies in Virtual Learning Environments. I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Kat Mahaffey. Who are you? What's your name and your title and your institution, your role there? Um, Who are you and what do you do? So I am Kat Mahaffey. I'm a teaching professor at University of North Carolina at Charlotte. We uh, have just recently rebranded, so we want to refer to ourselves as just Charlotte now. So I will be referring to my school as Charlotte. Um, I have been there for, goodness, 13 years, 12, 13 years. I am a former administrator in the department, and 
have done a lot of work on um, things like um, assessment and uh, teacher training and things like that. I also am a researcher in online privacy and accessibility. Those two things go hand in hand for me. I can talk a lot about that if you want me to, but they do go hand in hand for me. And um, I think I answered that question. Who am I? I'm also, I'm also a wife and mother and grandmother. I have a six-year-old granddaughter. And much of my online privacy scholarship recently has been towards her demographic, concerns about her upbringing and what's happening with um, privacy for children and teens. So I've been doing a lot of that. I I did a TED talk recently on that. So, um, yeah. So you're from North Carolina? Oh, I am from North Carolina. I'm born and raised a rural North Carolina girl. I have never lived within the city limits anywhere. Okay, which part? Davidson County was where I was uh, raised, born and raised. Okay. Where's that at? It's in the it's in the Piedmont of North Carolina. It's sort of like the central part of the state. And it's one of the wealthier counties in the state. So I was very privileged and went to, you know, a very high caliber, uh, highly academic school uh, all my life. Um, the one bad thing, though, was that it was not very diverse. So I wasn't exposed to a lot of uh, international or people of color uh, until I became an adult. And I went into, uh, interestingly enough, when I was 18, I uh, started working for Piedmont Airlines, which was the go-to airline in North Carolina at the time. It was a regional carrier. Wonderful job. I just absolutely loved it. I was proud to work for the airline. They were very customer-oriented, very Southern customer-oriented. Felt like I was happy there. And I worked there for 12 years. And over that 12 years, the public turned sour. It was just really bad by the time I left. Very abusive when you were um, either face-to-face with a uh, customer or online or, excuse me, on the phone talking with customers. So I left that job. And after that, I kind of did some um, self-employment things. And then I just decided when my youngest daughter, who is now 22, went to kindergarten that I was going to be a stay-at-home mom. And I did that for about, let's see, she went to school in August. And by October, I was like, this I this is not for me. I'm way too busy. I need to have things to do. So I decided to finish my degree. I had this, this would be the third attempt I had just to get an undergraduate degree. And I was in my 30s. So this is my story. And um I ended up getting an associate's degree from our local community college. And then I went to Charlotte for my undergraduate degree. And then I just kind of moved right into graduate school from there. And I didn't know I wanted to teach. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my English degree. And everyone was asking me, what do you want to do with this English degree that you're pursuing, this English master's degree? And I said, I don't don't know. I just love literature and I love writing. So when I uh, went to graduate school, I applied for an assistantship. And the first day I got into the classroom, I first of all threw up on the way in, of course, because I was very nervous. But after the first week or so, I was like, this is what I was meant to do. I am a teacher at heart. So, yeah. And that is where I have been. So I stayed there through graduate school and I did 
after I graduated with my master's degree, I did go away for one semester, one year, I think, to teach at a community college. And then a full-time position opened up at Charlotte and I went back and I have been there ever since. And I, the students are wonderful. I'm very proud of the school. We have grown. Oh my goodness. We have grown so much in the, uh, you know, 13 years I've been there. So, and then, uh, what, three years ago, I decided four years ago, five years ago, I decided I was going to take that last leap and do my ultimate goal, which has always been to get a PhD. And I went to Texas Tech and got my PhD there in technical communication and rhetoric. Wonderful experience. I cannot say enough about that program. It's very accessible because it's all online. Well, they have two different tracks. You can be there in person, but I did the online track. Um And that goes hand in hand with my whole notion of also being an online teaching scholar, because I do consider myself that as well. So I have lots of branches. Now I live, sorry, I'm still a rural girl. Now I live on a 60 acre farm, my husband's farm. We moved here about uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, I didn't want to move to the farm at first. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a rural girl, but I was not a farm farm girl, but my husband said, I want to move to the family farm. I want to move to the family farm. He just kept bugging me and bugging me. And uh, I said, okay, I'll move to the farm if I get a nice, big, beautiful house. And so he did that. And so we've lived on the farm and it has been the most wonderful experience. Our kids loved growing up on the farm. My husband thrives on being outdoors. I say he's half caveman because if he can't go outdoors and chop something every day, for a little while, he's not normal. So yeah, so we have just thrived here. Um, very happy on our 60 acre farm. There's a lot of threads here. And uh, that's what's great to talk with so many different people is that there's a lot of threads here, but they're also overlaying with conversations I've had with other people, right? And so I'm connecting and constellating a, a lot of different ideas here. And the thing that I'm interested in talking about is your interest in privacy and children. And it's not just because of my interest in privacy scholarship. Um, it's because you talk about your children and your grandchildren, right? And when you talk about like, uh, your your story, as you called it. And so I imagine that in maybe in some ways, uh, they serve as a catalyst for some of this research. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your interest there, uh, how you became interested in this topic, and what are some of the research threads that you're chasing as you as you uh, develop projects and and teach classes? Yeah, so my initial concerns about online privacy began um, when the field started to turn from paper portfolios to digital portfolios. And I was an administrator at the time, and I was very concerned because a lot of our faculty, well, and everyone across the field, were turning to things like Weebly and Wix. These, you know, this notion of a, a digital portfolio was a website. And they were using these WYSIWYG template uh, uh, website builders that were public. 
And of course, there are ways to keep those private. There are ways to put, you know, uh, passwords and such on there. But in any case, um, I, I got really, so I was expressing a lot of current concern to our faculty um, on two different fronts. One was the digital footprint of that student. What would they want to uh, have somebody Google and have, have read that they wrote? Do they want to, you know, these very personal reflections were showing up on there, like, you know, um, disparities against their family's reading habits or the, uh, something a teacher had said to them. You know, these these uh, not so public things that they were talking, very personal, private things that they're talking about, ended up on these websites because there were portfolios and you're, you're you're supposed to have these products and and these drafts and your reflective thinking along with that. And so I was very concerned about that. Uh, but this all culminated about four years in when uh, we were notified by the legal department of our university that um, a student had Googled himself and found all of his essays, his first year writing essays, public on the web. And what we found out is that one of the apps that the faculty were using, Scribed, I'm not even sure that that's a script, Scribed, whatever, um, no one had read the privacy policy. And the privacy policy was that they own those documents. And in order for that to be expunged, every single in individual student had to be contacted by our legal department. And, and we had like, it was like 11,000 by that point. It was just ridiculous, the number. So they had to contact all of them and say, look, your, your work is on the web, Scribed owns it, but you can go in and request that they remove it. And so that was... That was eye-opening for me. So I, I felt validated that I was making the right, right track, right thing. But the other, the other thing, of course, so that got me into privacy policies, right? At the same time I'm doing this, my kids are coming of age. And my kids uh, didn't have their first cell, cell phones until they were in middle school when they started playing sports, right? That was our impetus for that. You're going to be, you know, staying after school. We need to know what's going on with your sports schedule. We're going to give you this, you know, it was like a track phone with very limited data and they could, you know, it was very, very limited what they could do. They, they weren't really smartphones back then. Um, so that was happening. But once Facebook came around, I joined Facebook right when it came out and I was posting pictures of my children and at, at this, at, at one point, my children started to say, you know, I don't, I'm not really, I don't want you to do this. Can you not, I don't want you to take any pictures of me and put them on Facebook. Why did they feel that way? Was it just like they were like, was it they being moody teenagers or were they yeah. like, did they have security concerns? Well, okay, that's interesting because my son was a, a computer nerd and is a computer nerd. He's a computer scientist now, now that he's an adult. But um, nerds he, become scientists. I yeah, love that. <laughs> yeah. So he was not interested in all uh, having any kind of social media. He was just not interested at all in being public in that way. He's he's a private person, and my daughter um, really was about protecting her. She was not comfortable being photographed. And just being out there, although she did have, she has Instagram and Snapchat and all that kind of stuff now, but in any case, so I honored that. And, you know, what I was seeing in my friends, and I'm not criticizing them because you know, they were all doing it, was that they were taking pictures of their children who, and it was clear that their children didn't want their pictures taken. So that became a whole thing for me. Um, so then 
I moved into looking into the privacy policies and the whole notion of informed consent, right? And once I started doing that and I hooked up with SD Beck at Computers and Writing one year, and she decided that she would or agreed to be on my dissertation committee and that she felt like privacy would be a really fruitful um, project for me to pursue in my dissertation. And she, I, I told her how concerned I was about the digital, digital footprint of my, my granddaughter, who is now six, and all the other children who are on the web who are just being, you know, that their whole lives are on there now. And that's not something my children had to do. That's not something I had to worry about. So I do wonder, we don't really understand all the implications of that. Then that led me into looking at uh, once my granddaughter reaches, like, let's say, you know, right now she's covered by COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which came out in 1998. It's been updated a couple of times. It basically says that you can't collect data. You can't store data. You can't target uh, children 12 and under. But once a child reaches age 13, they have they are considered a full adult on the web. And so when they create an account with TikTok or Snapchat or whatever the latest thing is, right? Those corporate entities consider that a contract between this teenager and them. Parents cannot get access to the accounts. Parents cannot take down content in the accounts, uh, even if they feel like something their, their teenager is posting or is being exposed to is inappropriate. Now, in theory, it sounds like you should be able to go to, to TikTok or Instagram and say, you know, what the heck. But um, if you look at Instagram's uh, uh, guide for parents, it clearly says, you know, your child clicked that button and has agreed to the terms and agreements. This is this is between me and them. And you know, you have limited access. We cannot give you their password if they don't want you to have it. I mean, and so I got then I got to thinking about the barrier between parents and the world, right? Between children and the world. It used to be the parents were there. That was the barrier. You could not get to a child unless you went through that parent. But that's different now. These marketers, and, they've, and marketers have always targeted teens, but largely in my generation, it was through commercials on TV, right? PSAs, things like that. Uh, billboards, mall displays, et cetera, et cetera. But now they can actually target a teen who, let's say a teen um, is getting ready for prom. I talked about this in my recent TED talk. A teen is getting ready for prom and they might Google, how can I lose five pounds really quickly for the big day, right? Well, that appends to their digital profile and all these dating, excuse me, dieting apps and dieting promoters um, will bombard that teenager with, you know, dieting stuff because there's no barrier. They're, they're considered adults and there's a whole plethora of resources out there, if you have a product that you want to market to teens, a whole plethora of resources out there of how you can do that, right? How can you get to the teens? Um, and that is right. deeply troubling to me. This is interesting because my early interest, like the earliest interests I think I had in thinking about privacy online were thinking about children and how they were represented on their parents' social media 
feeds. Um, I'm thinking at the time I had maybe like my brother. I have a bunch of nephews. So like maybe my brother and my sister just had a kid or something like that. And so I was thinking about like how they would, you know, put pictures online or, and it really just starts like with, you know, a, a pregnancy announcement, a gender reveal, all these things that I'm in, all these things that I'm in the process of doing right now. <laughs> um, oh, but, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, but my thoughts were pretty naive, right? Uh, I was like, oh, you know, the, the the children, you know, might grow up to be a criminal. And now uh, the police have all their entire history. They just go to their parents, you know, Facebook page. Like you said, you, you when Facebook first came out, like these first generation Facebook users that were in college and like, right after the bubble burst in like 2000, what, two, three, four, three, four, five. Like these are, these, they're, these whole lives are on Facebook uh, of children that were born then and, uh, and in other digital spaces as well. But I think my thoughts were too naive when I was thinking about it because I wasn't contemplating that they would be able to use these, um, images to create you know facial recognition software technologies and databases like that you know that's a whole other thing isn't it and i i remember when you uh were talking to us recently uh about the ancestry dna stuff right and my daughter had sent me a 23andme last christmas or the christmas before last and i did it i did it because i was interested oh yeah i'm interested yeah but I'm also a true crime uh, buff. And so I know how they are now, like you said, they're tracking people down um, through their, through this DNA registry. But, but the other, and and you're, you're hinting at that and you're, you're getting there. And I know that's where you're probably going. The other big thing is this whole notion of surveillance and what that does to us. And that's what we don't know is that's what we don't fully understand is happening to our, our children. You know, uh, even babies now know whenever you point that camera at them, they smile, you know, so there's this surveillance thing. And we know from, uh, you know, all the good work, uh, you know, of Bentham and and the Panopticon and all that, all that interesting stuff, um, you know, and I think it was, um, was it uh, Nissenbaum who called it the super Panopticon, you know, where now we literally it's not really just 20, you know, around us, it's three, it's, 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 it's fully dimensional. You know, we have this, this full digital profile history of us uh, online. And, and it just recently uh, when we watched Katanji Brown Jackson become interviewed, right. For her Supreme court position. And what did they do? They Googled some or, or tracked down one of her early essays and, you know, kind of critiqued her for that. And that's, that, that's always been my concern is that, you know, sometimes freshmen (laughs) say dumb things and they write stupid things because they're learning. They're just, they're just waking up their, their inner self. They don't really know what they believe yet. They're exploring all that stuff and they say stupid things and they do stupid things. And putting that on the web is to me just a huge mistake because, uh, you know, Look at all the blackface that's coming out now. Uh, and I'm not saying those people were ever right to do that. But what I'm saying is 
even if you completely changed your philosophy and, and learned and grew since that stage, that's still there. It's it's something that you can't erase because uh, there is no um, there is no removal from the internet. And that takes me to the GDPR, which is another important piece of privacy legislation and the right to be forgotten. But there is no there is no way to be forgotten. It's it's a it's an idealistic dream. You because it's so disparate. All of our data now, when I, for instance, I shared this again on my TED talk recently, uh, my daughter loves uh, Milk Bar, right? So she wanted a birthday cake for Milk Bar. I had Googled that. We go to Milk Bar like once a year and we go to New York City, but she wanted it for a birthday in July. So I Googled Milk Bar and just to find out like kind of what the price is and how far out the delivery dates were, right? Well, after that, all I saw on my Facebook feed and my TikTok feed Milk bar, milk bar, milk bar, milk bar, milk bar, right? Um, and that was, and I had moved from my laptop to my phone. So it went across apps and it went across devices. And I was using Google at the time, which I don't mean anymore. Now I use Safari and there are, we can get into all that stuff. But, um, you know, instantly when you do something online, it is sold and spread across the web to multiple brokers, multiple apps use it. And there is no way that you can pull any of that back. It's there. I don't know what to say. It's there. Um, well, just much like the surveillance. Uh, it's not just like that we're being surveilled. surveilled we're, being, we're being surveilled through, you know, like ourselves right now. Uh, we are not just like, you know, the object, we are the vehicle uh, for surveillance uh, in this digital world. Um, you mentioned your TED Talk, uh, and that's available online. You can check that out, listeners. Um, I'm interested in TikTok, uh, which I know that you are interested in or have been interested in. Uh, I'll admit, uh, I've ventured into the, the TikTok waters, uh, more and more the last year, if you will. Uh, my wife has doom scrolled her way through TikTok, I guess, uh, throughout the COVID pandemic and continues to do so. And, uh, some interns working on the podcast even got the podcast on TikTok, uh, this month, yeah. Uh, I I didn't know. Like I don't know. I I feel like I, uh, I'm a, being a bit facetious, but with a face for radio, I wasn't sure exactly how to approach TikTok. Uh, but they came up with some really brilliant content. And see, this is this is like this is what I can't do. Like I can do all kinds of posts on the old school social media, but the new school social media, I have no idea what to do. So I'm glad that they're doing that and listeners can check out the big rhetorical podcast on TikTok. But I believe that was a primary area of your dissertation project, right? It was. Tell us a little bit about the dissertation. I know it's been a couple of years now, but uh, that's a project that <laughs> for better or worse sticks with us in some way. So tell us a little bit about your dissertation project and your interest in studying TikTok. Yeah, so uh, I am on TikTok. I am addicted to TikTok, just like most TikTokers. 
I find it actually a uh, useful space. Um, it's kind of like my other go-to social media is Reddit. And the thing about Reddit and TikTok are that you pretty much, the algorithm, it's, it's partly the algorithm, partly what you, your own actions, but it becomes tailored to you. So I'm I'm in I'm into politics a lot and I love following like political TikTokers and I love following things on Reddit about politics and things like that. Um, but my dissertation involved um, exploring what parents know or understand or how they feel. All these things mixed up together about um, the fact that their teens, once they reach age thirteen, have this. Uh, whole other lives that they don't have access to and that they can't have access to. And I wanted to know what ideas they had, how they feel about it. And so I ended up surveying, I got really lucky and got into a pool um, of about 500 participants and they were all mothers. So, and, and, and I didn't know this when I was, when I got into the pool, but most of them were college educated. So that it does taint my results quite a bit. Um, but uh, about 250 of them did respond to my sur a survey that I sent out. And I basically was asking them, you know, what accounts do you have? Do your teens have accounts? You know, um, um, do, do you have access to your teens accounts? That sort of thing. What questions do you have? Did, do you think your teens understand the privacy policies? Those sorts of things. And the last question was, would you like to participate in an interview, right? So then I conducted a series of interviews with 10 different um, mothers. They were all mothers all over the country, uh, a wide diverse of races and um, ethnicities. And what I discovered is parents have a lot of anxiety about uh, how to manage their teen social media usage. And in specific, they just don't seem to know, they first of all did not understand that they don't have access, even if they wanted you know, access to their teens accounts because those teens have their separate you know, uh, terms and agreements with these entities. But they felt like um, there was a three-pronged need. Uh, the first one was they wanted specific education. They felt like it should be part of the public school system. They wanted education for not only their children about how to keep themselves uh, safe online. And I'm not talking about just from predators. I'm talking about from, you know, uh, targeted ads and, and other unhealthy things as well. Right. They wanted both teens and they wanted workshops for parents and teens, some space that they could get to. They also wanted industry to become uh, to embrace more ethics when it came when it comes to teens and to separate them off. Um, so, because I, I shared with them that right now we have COPPA, there's no reason we couldn't have some sort of bridge uh, legislation for children from 13 to 18. There's no reason we couldn't do that, right? And in fact, TikTok, you may not know this, just recently has set, um, I, I'm not sure how hard or in stone this is, but they have recently said they're going to limit the TikTok feeds for teenagers up to age 18, they're gonna limit the feeds, I think to like one hour or something like that. And I guess, I guess the app shuts down. I, I haven't really looked into how that works, but stuff is starting to happen now because people are continuing to talk about this issue. But the third prong is legislation. They absolutely felt there should be legislation. And that's, that's where that bridge legislation comes in. You know, I don't know that we need to have it 
teens as closed off um, as children 12 and under, but they certainly should not be agreeing to terms and agreements uh, at age 13. They can't understand them. They don't read them, as you already pointed out um, recently when we were together. Uh, they No one reads these, these things. I don't read them. Uh, I only read them if I'm doing research on them, right? Because then I want to know what does this thing say? Right. Uh, yeah. So how do we overcome the apathy? How do we overcome the surveillance apathy? Well, that was okay. So I'm going to go back to my TED talk because that was my whole goal there. I originally was going to do my TED talk on um, on teen privacy. But then as I started working through it, you go through this huge coaching process. I don't know if you want me to talk about that, but this huge coaching process. I do actually, because when earlier, the reason I turned to TikTok is because I figured a lot of the content was the same, like that we might talk about today. And that was in the TED talk and you've referenced it a couple of times, right? But I would like to learn more about the, the inside baseball of preparing for a TED talk. Awesome. Okay. All right. Because I love talking about it. It was a wonderful experience, an amazing experience. It was grueling, though. So uh, TEDx Charlotte, each of these X, you know, the TEDx franchises are uh, separate entities, but just like any other franchise, they are beholden to TED. And TED is very proprietary and very picky, right? So um, every every franchise has its own flavor. But Charlotte, I'm I'm very lucky. The TEDx Charlotte uh, franchise. Um, is committed to diversity, it's committed to reaching out to non-academics, you know, just kind of getting different people, different speakers into their pool, for starters. They also, uh, uh, not every franchise does this, but they require all of their speakers to go through an intensive workshop and audition process. So here's what, here's how it works. So like in August-ish, I, after I had graduated with my PhD, I said, I want to do a TED talk because I want to talk about this. And in fact, SD Beck had encouraged me to uh, do something public with what I had learned. So I went, I applied to TEDx Charlotte. And the first step was going to an audition. It was, um, you know, really quick, like five minutes. Um, And so, you know, you had to get all your talking points. It was very, very hectic. And after that, they 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 had like, a, I think she said they had like 167 application, applicants for that initial audition. After that, they whittled us down to 15. So I was in the 15, the group of 15, and we had to go through all summer. So this started in like March, I think. We went all through the spring and summer with workshops, just multiple workshops. There was also one-on-one coaching. And during all that process, they just kept encouraging me, what is the thing you really want to do here? What do you want to do? What is your ultimate goal? And I said, I want people to care about this stuff. I just want them to to care. I want this apathy. I want to break through this apathy. I want them to see that this is important, that it is damaging us, right? And so that's where I that's where I went. I do include some of my teen stuff, but I also included a lot of the you know political fake news stuff that's been happening, uh, the, you know the the bots and and trolls and things that uh, impacted the uh, twenty twenty election um, so dramatically. Um, so after that, you go through a, um, a a second audition, a final audition, and then after that, they whittled us down to eight. Um, and then they they went, we had to go through, um, they want you to memorize, literally memorize, play it in your car, say it over and over again, um, so that it becomes rote. And that, and at first I was really, and several of us were like, ah, I don't speak well when I have it memorized, right? Because, you know, you and I 
Charles, we're used to doing presentations. I do presentations out the wazoo. You know, we, we do all these public speaking things. I've never memorized. I typically speak off the cuff, but they said, no, we want you to this. We know from our experience that there's a threshold that you reach. You At first, it's really you do bad, 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 bad. But then you reach this point <laughs> where you know it in your in your in your body, you know it in your cell. And then you can start, you know, interjecting, ad-libbing, doing the, the, the flourishes that they want. Because part of their thing was, you know, you have to have the stage presence. And that second audition was all about stage presence. And I really practiced a lot in front of my husband. And he was like, do this and do that. And, uh, you know, walk around and all this stuff. But um, yeah, I was really proud of my TED Talk. There are a couple things I would wish I could go back and redo. <laughs> But, um, you know, as everyone else, but I, I really am happy with the coach, coaching and, and the experience. I don't want to go through it again. I'm going to be honest because it was quite intensive, but I learned a tremendous amount about public speaking. And not only that, my cohort was so interesting. So one of the other speakers in my cohort um, is she, she works in construction and her whole talk was about uh, um, giving girls blow torches and exposing them to these you know, these non-traditional uh, female, the traditional male things that they just don't get to, and, and having women as mentors for that space. And she, and she kind of does a lot of proactive stuff on that. So yeah, it was just a really uh, great experience. Uh, and I am really proud of it. And I make my students watch it. And I'm going to make all my students watch it from now on, because I do think um, it's an important discussion. And it's not, it's just the beginning. For the first time last week, it's the first week of March, listeners. For the first time last week, I signed an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast in a class that I was teaching. So I think that it's okay uh, to do that, to assign the TED Talk. What's GSOL and what's your role with GSOL? Okay, so GSOL is the Global Society of Online Literacy Educators. Uh, I am the current president of GSO. I have been with GSO. I was, I actually started as the treasurer and I was, I did that for two years and then I became, I was elected to vice president. And then the system is that you roll from vice president up to president so we can sustain that leadership. So that's, so now I'm in president and then there's a past president uh, phase. So I like to say that it's kind of like the foundation series. I don't know if you are into any of that stuff, but uh, in the foundation series, People, if you get it, you get it. If you know, you know. But they have, um, you know, three different uh, leaders always in tow. So you have Dawn, who is the learning leader emerging. Then you have Day, who is the current leader. And you have Dusk, who's the leader going out, right? And so I'm now in the Day phase of the Dawn, uh, Day, Dusk um, movement. But in any case, so GSOL was born out of the online writing instruction community from the four C's. And it, it originated as a committee that was tasked with coming up with um, online teaching best practices and principles for the C's. And they did a lot of good work and they became cohesive. And this is a group of people that I infiltrated because when I was an administrator, we wanted to introduce some online courses in our department and I had to become an expert. So that year at C's, I infiltrated that group and I have never left. It is the most uh, collegial, uh, supportive group of people I have, I've just ever known. They're just so wonderful. 
So when the four C's restructured, I don't know, I guess it was like five, six years ago, they restructured and sort of did away with a lot of their committees and instead shifted them towards standing groups. Um, some of the people said, we need, we like the standing group and we're still there and I'm still part of that, but we need, we want to have something that really supports online teaching. So we started uh, GSOL. Um, I was not one of the original founders, but I was part of that process and I watched it, you know, grow up, <laughs> let's say. But um, the mission of GSOL is to support uh, teachers and administrators um, who are teaching in digitally mediated environments. And that's the best way I can explain it. It's not just about teaching online. It's about uh, understanding how digital reading and writing happen, how to make uh, you know, web content or you know, course content that is accessible to students. And uh, we do also offer certification courses. Um, we have webinars. I think the, the thing I'm most proud of is that during the pandemic, as soon as everything hit in, GSOL was flexible enough because we have this wonderful group of volunteers and leaders. We were flexible enough that we jumped in with what we call just-in-time webinars. And we had, we had you know, anyone who was willing in our uh, leadership to host, just be available, just go on to Zoom during these different times. And whoever could come, could come, right? Whoever was available and needed help at that moment in time. And we had them spaced out so that it, they were available to all teachers at any time. And it was so successful. And we also put up a lot of really helpful, quick and dirty, you know, how can you transition your, your course really quickly? Because, you know, everyone was just in triage mode and no one knew what to do. How do we make this transition? And some uh, departments had experts within them and others didn't. And so that was really eye opening. But um but GSOL has grown uh, exponentially every year. We have an online virtual conference. We are committed to keeping that conference online so that we can reach uh, the faculty who are underserved, uh, in particular, um, non-tenure track, and those at institutions who don't have the kind of support that larger institutions like mine have for training, for professional development. Even one of the things I've discovered this past year uh, as president, GSO also serves as a pathway for developing leadership skills. Um, you know, you can, you can come into this welcoming community and, and you have this group of people who will mentor you and support you as you're learning to become a leader, if you're, as you're learning to become a scholar in this area. And I just can't say enough good things about it. And I have, I've already said to you, I want the big rhetorical podcast and your um, uh, rhetorical, what is this awesome society you have now? I've forgotten what it's called, but we want you to do some, some webinar series. Um, I'd love to piggyback and, and collaborate um, because I think your work intersects with ours in lots of healthy and interesting ways. Let's keep in touch on that. Where can listeners find more information about GSOL online. Remind me what GSOL stands for, Global Society of Online Literacy Educators. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Global Society <laughs> of Online Literacy Educators. And it's easy to find it. It's gsol.org, G-S-O-L-E.org. You'll see that we have uh, tons of uh, webinar archives. We have um, 
conference archives. We have, please check out our just-in-time resources. That's the residual leftover from the pandemic triage uh, support that we offered. And we're, we're actually um, have been talking recently about you know, revisiting that and expanding that in many ways. Um, so yeah, it's a great organization. We welcome anyone who wants to, to work on this. We've, we've recently started branching out into, we uh, um, appointed a K-12 liaison. We're going to try to start you know, uh, incorporating networks from from that community into the conversation and into the mix. Um, just a wonderful. I can't say enough good things about. It. Of course, I'm I'm partial because I you know I, I love right. it. I'm a part of it, but I I will say, so many people have um, gotten so much out of this organization. So, uh, what are you doing this afternoon? This afternoon, I'm going to a candidate talk. Uh, I'm also, just a plug here, I'm also uh, working on a book project that um, I'm, I'm doing with uh, three other co-authors, and we're, we're writing a book on about accessibility in course design. And it's going to be a comprehensive manual um, through Rutledge. We've gotten a contract through Rutledge, so we're very excited about that. Look for that to come out maybe later this year, first of next year. Well, we should have talked about that project. I Sorry. guess we'll have. Well, I know. We'll have to do another one, Charles. I know. We'll have to have you back on. I know that feeling too. It's like, it's really great to have book contracts and win awards and get grants and then you have to do all that stuff <laughs> it can be a little overwhelming. Um, and I have so much more to say about accessibility um, and technology use in the classroom. Um, Cause I've moved, you know, so somewhere totally new in that area. I now, it's now an access issue for me. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think we have time, but that is a whole new area that I'm looking into. And uh, basically, how do you choose technologies for your classroom? Why are you choosing them? Developing heuristics for that. I'm working with Michelle Stuckey, who is a um, director at Arizona State University for, I think it's the first year writing program there. And her and I, so she's got the administrator lens and I've got the teacher lens. And we're doing some interesting things there. We'll have to try something new with the podcast and have a part one conversation with you and then have you and your co-authors back when the book comes out. Uh, this has been excellent. Great conversation. Eye-opening conversation, an important conversation. Uh, you know, um, we hear a lot about digital privacy through the lens of artificial intelligence right now. And that's important work. Uh, our field is not in a crisis, though. Uh, these issues with digital privacy extend far beyond uh, the influence of artificial intelligence. And uh, scholars in our field have been doing this work for a long time, and we need to turn to those uh, those people now. Uh, Kat, this has been great. Thanks so much. And enjoy the candidate talk this afternoon. I hope it's a good one. Thank you so much, Charles. I have really enjoyed this. interview with 
Dr. Mahaffey. I met Kat a couple years ago, all right? And it was such a treat to catch up with her at Four Seas in Chicago in February and then learn more about her research during this interview more specifically. She is doing really smart work, but also really cool work. It's timely and it's relevant. And I'm not just saying that because I research digital privacy too. I want to encourage you all listeners, Kat, you too, to seek out the new digital privacy project I'm involved with, with scholars from around the U.S., the Digital Rhetorical Privacy Collective, and consider joining or contributing to the project. You can find more information at drpcollective.com. Sorry for the plug. I'll be back next week with another new episode of TBR Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapoo, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Stefa Helix, and Ben Sound. Mm-hmm.